It's going to seem a little strange to start on a negative note after something so positive taking place within our church family. But the message for today calls us to think of something that's not very pleasant. In fact, I can think of nothing that causes more grief than for a loved one to die without the hope of eternal life. You know, we can be comforted even after the death of a child if we know he or she is in the presence of Jesus. And I pray I was able to give such comfort to Frank and Joyce Embry last Friday when we buried their great-granddaughter, Elizabeth Isabella Grace Embry. Isabella was born prematurely and spent her 34 days outside the womb in intensive care. But as I said, I hope we can be comforted. Comforted even in tragic circumstances in what seems to be a premature death when we have the promise of eternal life. But there's no comfort thinking a loved one will be eternally separated from Christ because they refused to accept the gift of God's grace. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul felt about his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who had refused to accept Christ. He said he had great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for the unbelieving Jews. And as incredible as it may sound, he said, even if it were possible, if it were possible, he would give up his hope of eternal life for them. He would consider himself, allow himself to be accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brethren. That he would give up his eternal life if by doing so it would guarantee the eternal life of others. Now, I can't comprehend a willingness to do that. You know, I, I think I'm confident enough to say I would give up my life for loved ones. But I don't believe I could ever give up my eternal life for anyone. I still don't have the heart of the Apostle Paul. But I do know that I would feel the same great sorrow and unceasing grief that he felt if a loved one refused to accept Christ or walk away from him and never return. In spite of my grief, however, I hope I wouldn't blame God. I hope I would remember that every person has the right to choose whether to walk in fellowship with the Lord or not. And that God never promised to save everyone, not even those I care about. I know God doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter tells us that in 2 Peter 3.19. And I know that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself told us that in John 3.16. But not everyone is going to believe. Not everyone is going to be saved. And God never promised 
they would. But some will. Some are indeed God's children of promise. We're studying in the ninth chapter of Romans, a very difficult chapter. And speaking of the Jews who refused to accept the promised Messiah, Paul had this to say. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. It caused Paul great sorrow and unceasing grief to know his brethren, the Jews, the Israelites, weren't all accepting Christ as Messiah. But some were. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were baptized into Christ. The apostles were all Jewish. Paul was Jewish. So it would be wrong to say the Jews were rejecting Christ. Many were. That's true. But God never promised to save them all. In fact, not everyone who is an Israelite physically is an Israelite spiritually. Not everyone who is a physical child of Abraham is a spiritual child of Abraham. And God never promised that all the children of Abraham would be considered children of God, that they would all be numbered among his chosen people. He told Abraham, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That meant that Ishmael and the sons Abraham had with Keturah were not included in the promise God made to Abraham. They were children of Abraham, but they weren't children of promise. Now, the Jews knew that. They knew their history. But they didn't realize how it related to them, at least not until John the Baptist confronted them and said, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And Jesus then said that while they may have been Abraham's physical offspring, those who were rejecting him and seeking to kill him weren't even children of God. They were, in fact, children of the devil. And then Paul made it clear how God was raising up children of Abraham through faith. In Galatians, he makes that very clear. In Galatians 3, 7, he said, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And in Galatians 3.29, he said, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I believe that has direct bearing on what has been called the contemporary evangelical preoccupation with the place of the Jews in prophecy today. I'm convinced because of the limited parameters and conditional nature of the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, and in light of what Paul has said, that as a separate people, the Jews have no place in prophecy today. Their place has been given to those who are of the faith of Abraham, whether they be Jew or Greek, alive 
a slave or free, male or female. For as Paul said, those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then, he says, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, what all that means is quite simply that the true sons of Abraham are not those who can trace their lineage back to Abraham. The true sons of Abraham are those who believe the promises of God, as did Abraham. And that means we can become sons of Abraham if we believe the promises God made to us, the good news made possible through the death of his son. The gospel, that good news, is that anyone can become a child of promise. Now, I doubt that the kids will be singing it this week, but kids love to sing, what, Father Abraham. Remember seeing them march around? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And it goes on. It's, It's a catchy song, but it's a great truth. We can become sons of Abraham through faith. That's the good news. That's the good news. We can become children of promise. The bad news, however, is that not everyone will. And not everyone is a child of promise. God never promised they would be. And he didn't promise it to Abraham. And he didn't promise it to Sarah. And that becomes obvious when we look at Sarah's child of promise. Verse 9. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now when God first called Abraham, he said he would make of him a great nation. And that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. He promised a homeland for Abraham's family and said they would be as numberless as the dust of the earth. Several years later, when God reaffirmed that Abraham's reward for faithfulness would be very great, Abraham expressed frustration over the fact that he was still childless. And that at that point, the only heir he had was a servant in his home. Well, God assured him that the servant wouldn't be his heir, but that one would come forth from his own body to be his heir. God then took him outside and had him look to the heavens and count the stars. And he told him his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Abraham believed God. And because of his faith, God considered Abraham to be a righteous man. He became a friend Of God. But then, by the time Abraham was in his 80s and he still had no son, Sarah, his wife, figured she was the problem. And so she offered Abraham her handmaiden, Hagar, and he took her unwisely as a second wife. She bore Abraham a son, and an angel named him Ishmael, which means God hears. And God promised through the angel to multiply his descendants so they would be too many to count. And so Abraham assumed that Ishmael was the child of promise. But when his son was 13 years old and Abraham was 99, God told him Sarah 
would have a son and that she would become the mother of the promised nations. Abraham fell on his face laughing at the thought of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a baby. But after composing himself, he said to God, oh, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In other words, let the promises be fulfilled through Ishmael. But God said, no. He said that Sarah would bear a son, and his name would be Isaac, which means he laughs. The covenant would be established through the one whose announced birth made both Abraham and Sarah break into laughter. Ishmael would be blessed. He would become the father of 12 princes and a great nation, the Ishmaelites, and later the Arabs would come from him. But he wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was to be Sarah's child of promise. And then... Even though Isaac would have two sons, only one would be Rebekah's child of promise. Let's read on. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, But because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now don't get hung up on that last verse. We'll deal with that in a moment. But Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, married Rebekah, his uncle's granddaughter, When he was 40 years old, and for nearly 20 years, they were childless. Then, in response to Isaac's prayer on behalf of his wife, they always figured it was the woman's fault, Rebecca conceived. As her pregnancy progressed, Rebecca could tell something strange was going on inside of her. And when she asked God what was happening, he told her that two nations were in her womb. Now, some of you mothers may have felt or are now feeling like that yourself. But with Rebecca, it was literally true. God went on to say, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, when she delivered, she had twin sons. The firstborn came out all red and hairy, and they named him Esau, which means hairy. The second came out holding on to his brother's heel, and they named him Jacob, which means one who takes by the heel, or one who supplants. As they grew, Esau became a hunter and a rugged outdoorsman and his father's favorite. Jacob became a mama's boy. He became a peaceful man. The word literally means a complete man, however. And he lived in tents. And he was his mom's favorite. Well, one day when Esau came in from the field famished, he asked Jacob for some of the stew that he was making. And Jacob lived up to his name as one who supplants and said he would give him some if Esau would give him his birthright, his privileges as the firstborn. 
Esau, who thought more of his stomach than the future, agreed to do so. He sold his birthright for a pot of stew. And then when Isaac was old and his eyes too dim to see, Jacob supplanted Esau a second time. You know, God had reaffirmed with Isaac the promises he had made to Abraham. And Isaac wanted to pass those promises on to his eldest son, Esau. But through deceit, orchestrated by Rebekah, Jacob received the blessing. And that blessing confirmed what God had said to Rebekah while the boys were still in her womb, that the older would serve the younger. Jacob, not Esau, was Rebekah's child of promise. It's a lot of history. And why is Paul reminding us of all this? I think he wants us to be sure we understand that no one can assume they have a relationship with God by virtue of who they are. You know, the Jews thought they were God's chosen people because they were children of Abraham. So Paul reminded them that not all of Abraham's descendants were chosen. Not all were children of promise. He wants us to understand that God always retains the right to choose whoever he wants. And he chose Jacob over Esau before they were born before they could even do anything to merit God's choosing. Now, whether God had foreknowledge about their future life, I don't know. I don't know. But it really doesn't matter, because God can do whatever he chooses to do. Now, Paul did recognize that some of us might question what appears to be an arbitrary choice by God, and he's going to address the possibility of injustice with God next week. So let's keep that on the back burner. For now, let's simply acknowledge that God can do whatever he wants to do. God is God, and we're not. And if he wants to love Jacob and hate Esau, he can do it. However, we should keep in mind that Paul is quoting from the prophet Malachi here. And Malachi is talking about the nations that came from Jacob and Esau, the Israelites and the Edomites, not actually the men themselves. And we must also keep in mind that when the Bible uses terms like love and hate together, it's using them in their comparative sense. Jesus didn't mean we're to actually hate our parents when he said if we didn't hate them, we couldn't be his disciples. He meant we couldn't love them more than we love him. I don't believe God actually hated Esau. He just did more for Jacob. He chose Jacob to be Rebekah's child of promise. Again, we have to ask, what does this have to do with us? How does this relate to us and to our children? Well, I think it means we must never assume that we are children of God because of our heritage, because of who our parents are. And we can never assume that our children are children of God, at least not until, not once they reach the age of accountability. We can't assume they belong to God. We can direct them to him. We can pray for them. 
We can have VBS to encourage them. But the final decision is theirs. It's through an individual's faith in Jesus Christ that anyone becomes a child of God. It's a choice we have to make. And in spite of what your Calvinist friends might tell you, we don't have to worry about God not choosing us for salvation. I'm convinced that's a distorted view of God's election. He's made it very clear that salvation is available to all who will believe. But we do have to believe. And we have to believe in such a way that we're willing to surrender our all to him. We have to accept his offer to save us. And we must then live a life that reflects gratitude for the fact that he has chosen to save us. It's his desire that we become children of God. But we have to make it clear that we're willing to do so. Again, this has been kind of a strange history lesson for us. But it's important. Because it's so easy to assume we're good just because we are part of a church, because we identify as a member of a church. Our parents or grandparents were known for their faith, and we live in a Christian nation. But that's not what makes us a child of God. The only way anyone can become a child of God is through faith in what God has done. Trusting, trusting what he makes available through his son. It's a personal decision that has to be made. Now, I'm convinced our children are under, under grace when they're growing up in a Christian home. But there comes a time when they, too, must make a decision. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when that is, but there is an age of accountability, a time when God looks to each heart and says, what are you going to do? Never assume. Never assume that relationship. Make sure... It's one that has come from the heart as best you can. Make that choice for yourself. Encourage your children to make that choice. Help us as a church to encourage children to choose to follow Jesus. Because only then do we have the assurance that we're children of God. And without that assurance, there's, there's no peace. There are tragedies in life. Horrible things happen. How do we respond if we don't know there's something better? You know, I think we've got to be very careful when preaching at a funeral that we don't make assurances we can't give. And it's always a struggle to know what to say and how to comfort without saying something that may not be so. All we can do is hold out the good news that Christ is available to anyone. And pray that those who are there hear the message. And a seed is planted. And it'll grow into a faith that trusts Jesus. That's what I seek to do. And I pray that's what you seek to do as well. Again, as we mentioned last week, we don't want to appear judgmental. We don't want everyone to assume we're saying we're better than them. 
but we've got to make it very evident to them that they have to make a choice. Our children have to make a choice. We have to make a choice. We've got to be willing to believe. We've got to accept things that seem untrue. Maybe like Abraham and Sarah will laugh and say, that can't be. But it was. And God did what he said. God can save us. And he will. If we'll accept what he offers. If we'll surrender to his lordship. And then live a life that reflects gratitude for what he's done. Then we have every assurance that we are children of God. It's my prayer that everyone here has that assurance. And if you don't, let me help you get it.